Maybe start of the year, the, the town library has a book sale, and I, um, I got this book there earlier this year, Reader's Digest, What to Do in an Emergency. And I thought this would be a very helpful book. I mean, it's not pocket size, unfortunately, but um, as I've flicked through it, you know, in the last few months, there's some good things, there's some good advice in there, um, what to do in case of a heart attack, um, what to do in case of a gunshot wound, you know, it does happen. Uh, what, what to do in case you're caught in a riot, um, haven't had too many of those in Alexandra, but you just never know, it's always good to be prepared. What to do if you're kidnapped abroad, you guys sound sceptical, but it happens. Okay, but, so those are some pretty serious emergencies, and it's good to, good to sort of know some advice, but <laughs> I don't know who wrote this book, but there's some, some emergencies, I just don't know why they included them in the book. Emergencies like this. No hot water. Uh, yeah, if it, if it went on for a long time, maybe. Or toilet is blocked. Like, that is, that is legitimately page 150, classified as emergency. Or the internet connection is down. <laughs> That's not an emergency. That is just pure official time off, I reckon. But there is one, there is one emergency which I just thought you would love to know um, what to do if it ever happens. It's page 316. What to do in case of a hippo attack. <laughs> I'm going to read you what the advice is. Hippo attack. Find a safe spot. Hippos seldom bluff. Okay, never play poker with a hippo, obviously. If it charges, run straight to the safety of a tree, vehicle, or building. Now, this is, this, this is in bold, so this is very important. Hippos can run at nearly 30, 30 kilometres per hour, but cannot turn swiftly. You might be able to sidestep a charging hippo. <laughs> Keep that in mind, people you might be able to sidestep a charging hippo. That almost sounds like a deer. <laughs> I'm not going to try it. That's a good book, okay? It's a good book, you know, sort of... But there are some gaps in it as well. There is no there's no advice around what to do when you're faced with a real crisis, like the loss of a loved one, or a terminal diagnosis, or you're made redundant from your job or you're dealing with a rebellious child. Those are, those are challenges that we face. And, and if you were here last week, if you joined us in person or you listened online, you would have heard Ron, one of our teaching team, give us a really great reminder about the hope that Christians have to hold on to. And, and Ron gave us some really important insights around trusting in God in the midst of those challenges and those crises and those changes of our daily lives. And so if you are just hanging on, just by, by the fingernails, then I really encourage you to, to get onto the church website and to listen to that message. It's, it's very good. This morning, I just want to simply build on that by exploring a question which is possibly a little bit bigger, but I think really timely. And the question is this, where is God in the midst of these major disasters? 
I mean, you probably haven't been living under a rock, but if you have been, you'll be a, you'll, you would have missed the fact that there's been some devastation from a cyclone across the North Island, Cyclone Gabrielle, and then before that there was extensive flooding around Auckland and a whole lot of slips and all that sort of stuff. Huge damage. Now you know that, but have you noticed that, that in the news coverage there's, there's kind of been some religious elements that have kind of crept into the analysis? So one person was being interviewed about the floods in Auckland, and they said the flooding was on biblical proportions, right? Like a reference to that great flood in the time of Noah, Genesis chapter 6. Someone else was, being, um, someone else was describing the destruction across the Hawke's Bay, and they said it was apocalyptic, like referencing the biblical apocalypse and the judgment that is prophesied for the end times. And even insurance companies, they have this sort of whole theological aspect to natural disasters. If you read the fine print of a policy, you might find the phrase, an act of God. Right? It's a force of nature, maybe an earthquake or a tsunami or a storm, some sort of event that's outside of the control of, of humans. And the assumption is that in this act of God clause, that in the event, no one can be blamed for it. Okay, no one can be blamed for that, and there's a reason for that. Because if you can blame someone for an event, then you can sue them. And so the only person who could be blamed for an act of God is God, right? And it's not easy to sue God for damages. I don't know if you've ever tried, but tricky. And so this theological aspect to natural disasters, it actually has a really long history, most of the ancient religions believed that all natural disasters were punishments by the gods. So, for example, Herodotus, uh, one of the first Greek historians, known as the father of history, he claimed that a tsunami that hit the Greek coastline in the year 479 BC was divine punishment that had been sent by Poseidon, the Greek god of the sea, and as the waves swept up, up along the coastline, it, it wiped out this invading army of Persians. They were all drowned as punishment for invading the Greeks, right? Well, two and a half thousand years later, we've probably got a little bit more scientific analysis to why natural disasters happen. We know that cyclones happen because of wind patterns and ocean temperatures, we know that earthquakes happen because of shifts in the tectonic plates on the crust of our earth. But what's curious is that when a natural disaster occurs, when a, when a city is leveled by an earthquake or when a storm rips across the land or when a tsunami decimates a coastline, we still have this sense that it is unfair, that that suffering is not how things were meant to be. And that sense of injustice is even more acute if you are someone who has religious beliefs because it brings up some really big questions. Questions like, where was God when this disaster struck? Questions like, did he cause that disaster? Was he just a, a casual observer who was powerless to stop it, or was he a, a vindictive judge bringing punishment to people? Perhaps the most pressing question is, why? Why did it happen? 18 years ago, you might remember the tsunami that came up out of the Indian Ocean and on Boxing Day killed over 200,000 people across numerous countries. 
Well, in the aftermath, Christians and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists, they all claimed that disaster was divine punishment on the wicked. And it turns out that the wicked people were actually people from the other religions who were being punished for their wickedness. But, you know, even if you put that, put that whole, uh, the question of why disasters happen, there's some difficult ethical questions difficult ethical questions that kind of come out of it, like it seems that when a disaster strikes, both guilty and the innocent are affected. Babies and children are just as likely to lose their lives as criminals. Surely if God was all loving and all powerful, then he would protect those who didn't deserve to suffer, right? That's some pretty heavy questions. (laughs) I don't know if you expected that this Sunday morning. Sorry about that. I feel very, very inadequate to try and attempt an answer to those. I think what we're going to do is just scratch the surface. But if you want to know more, I'm very happy to share some helpful resources with you. But I still think that it's important, particularly for Christians, to try and understand the world that we live in. And so I'm not claiming that I have a special revelation or some sort of prophetic insight. I certainly can't pretend to fully understand the purposes and the plans of God. I mean, Lilani's even shared it with us this morning. God's ways are higher than our ways. And stuff happens, and we may never know why. In the year 1774, the English poet William Cowper wrote a poem, and he started it with this line, God moves in a mysterious way. I think that's true. But I also think in that mystery, God gives us glimpses of what he is doing. So before we sort of try and explore some answers to that, I just want to say this. Whatever I offer to you today is absolutely secondary to being with people when they're suffering. If you're going to switch off right now, tune out, that's it, that's the end of it. Know this, that the calling of a Christian is to be with people who are grieving. Paul writes, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. And so often Christians come in hot and they are speculating and they're explaining all this stuff about a disaster before they've even taken a moment to be still and to feel the pain of the grieving. And I think not only is that rude and really disrespectful, but it is not in line with the words and actions of Jesus. He empathized with the struggles and the strains that people were going through, and we would do well to do the same. So that is really, really important. But I think it's still helpful to have a look at some natural disasters from, from a theological perspective, and the simplest way is to just try and do it with sort of like a Q&A. So is that okay? Okay. All right. Good. Because if you'd said no, it'd be fine. I could just finish. First question, does God cause natural disasters? Very simple. The answer is yes, and the answer is no. So, science has revealed much about how natural forces work, okay? Wind patterns, ocean temperatures, tectonic plates, all that sort of stuff. Natural disasters have natural causes. But from a biblical perspective... God is ultimately in charge of the world. And so directly and indirectly, he controls what happens on on our planet. 
This is a little bit poetic, but this is how the, the writer of Psalm 135 puts it. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. So if God is in control, then, then I guess we need to ask, could he or would he cause natural disasters to happen? And there are actually several biblical examples where God does cause natural disasters. So God, causes, uh, God sends a flood in the time of Noah. He sends a plague of hail on the Egyptians. He closed the heavens and caused a drought, and that was only broken when Elijah prayed for rain. And God sent a storm, forced the sailors to toss Jonah overboard. So, so a basic reading of the Bible would indicate that, that God can, and he has actually caused natural disasters. But it's really important to understand the context of, of when and why those events happened. They're all specific examples from the Old Testament, and they were all explained as being acts of judgment by God. God was responding to blatant rebellion by his people, people who had broken the covenant which they had agreed to with God. And so according to the historical record, God had sent numerous prophets to, to give proclamation about the rewards and, and the warnings, the punishments. And so when the people did rebel and there was disaster which struck, it was a last resort. It was not in God's character to be vindictive and, and malicious. And this is, this is what we read, the great self-revelation of God in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord came down the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed this. The Lord said, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. You know, the essence of God's character is, is love. Look at it. He is compassionate. He is gracious, slow to anger, faithful, forgiving. It's not his intention to flippantly punish people for their wickedness, but he does when it's needed. He upholds justice. And I think we need to, I think we need to appreciate that. I think, I think we respect that. I mean, no victim wants their offender to go unpunished. And so in sending a natural disaster as punishment, you need to know that's not the normal way that God deals with wickedness. There's other disasters that are recorded in the Bible where God has no direct involvement. There's significant famines, strike during the time of Abraham, Joseph, Naomi, David, and there is no causal link made between God and those events. And actually Jesus, he dismissed the idea that, that disasters were always caused by God. So on an occasion, Jesus mentions about this tower that collapsed, killing 18 people. And Jesus' critics, they make this assumption that those people were punished who were working on the tower because they were working for the Romans. And Jesus is like, no, that's ridiculous. They are no more wicked than anyone else in the city. And so Jesus implies that, that usually people are killed by disaster because they are simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not because God is being vengeful. He even, even makes this more obvious when he was asked about a man who was born blind. And was that because his, of his sin or of his parents' sin? And Jesus says, 
No, he pushed back on that assumption. He said, no one is being punished here. This man was blind so that the power of God could be seen. And so it's important to know that, that God does not cause each and every natural disaster. Even though God is in control of the world, it's likely very rare that he uses the forces of nature to bring punishment. So next question, why doesn't God stop natural disasters? I mean, if he is so loving and powerful, why doesn't he hold back the forces of nature? Well, God could and does control the elements. This is how one of Job's friends puts it in Job 37. God's voice is glorious in the thunder. We can't even imagine the greatness of his power. He loads the clouds with moisture and they flash with his lightning. The clouds churn about at his direction. They do whatever he commands throughout the earth. That's power, right? And Jesus revealed that he too had that power. You might might remember uh, Jesus and disciples are crossing Lake Galilee and a ferocious storm whips up. And the disciples are just freaking out, like waves are breaking in over the bow and the boat's filling with water and they, they're fearing that they're going to drown. And this is what happens. Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Why didn't Jesus do something similar last week before Cyclone Gabrielle hit? Why didn't he do something like that before the flooding wiped out Auckland? Why didn't he do that before that earthquake hit Turkey? You know, if God has the power to control the forces of nature, why does he not stop disasters from happening? I mean, if God is as as loving as he says he is, why doesn't he prevent bad things from happening? You think about that claim. Because that's not how the real world works. Works. That's actually not how we work as people. If you know loving parents, you'll know that they allow their children to have age-appropriate choices, even though there are risks with that, even though there could possibly be negative consequences. Any parent who, who doesn't give their child space to grow and learn, they are called overprotective or overbearing or helicopter parenting. And so good parents give freedom to their children to learn and grow, even though there is the potential for bad things to happen. I mean, the the child might fall and injure themselves. So the question is really whether that freedom is justified. And we would probably agree that for the benefit of the child, the freedom is justified. So if God was more concerned about good behavior, he would limit our freedom. He would control essentially all that we do. But God's primary focus is love. He loves us so much that he has given us freedom to choose to enjoy and experience the freedom and friendship with him. You think about it for a minute. What would our world look like if God intervened every time there was the possibility of pain and suffering? I'll tell you now, our freedom would be severely limited. We would essentially be, be robots. We'd be operating under these very tight controls and restrictions. And perhaps more importantly, our world would be unpredictable. So our consequences, the consequences for our actions would be constantly changing. It would be impossible to have any moral standards because there'd be no absolute baseline. And science would be unfeasible. 
There'd be no permanent laws around cause and effect if God was constantly interfering to prevent suffering. In fact, if God prevented the every possibility of human suffering, then our world would be more messed up than what it is. We'd have limited freedom, there'd be no absolutes, and then there'd just be this random changeability. And so while God does have the power to intervene and hold back natural disasters, it's clear that on some occasions he doesn't. But you could also argue that there are just as many occasions, possibly even more, where God might hold back disasters that we don't see. And there's probably countless instances of tragedies that could have happened if the timing was only a moment sooner or or a moment later. I don't know if you've ever watched any of those fail army videos on YouTube. Has anyone watched any of those where basically people just do some really stupid stuff? You know, crashing, falling off things, all that sort of... If you haven't seen any of those, think, you know, those TV shows, funniest home videos. That's what it's basically like. And there there must be some miraculous interventions in those. There's some really close calls that obviously have some divine involvement. I'm going to show you a clip now, and I'll explain it in a minute. Okay, he's fine. He was okay. So don't worry. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, uh, there's, some, there's, some, there's some silly people out there, right? That was not me. No, no. No way. I would possibly not have made that. The guy just has bristle legs, but he was, he was fine. It's very clear why he crashed into the side of the house, because not only was he a bad pilot, but um, all those things sort of fell into place. And, and we can see the reasons why for those sorts of things, but when natural disasters hit, probably the biggest question we ask is why? Now, what is the purpose? What is the point of all that devastation and destruction? And to be honest, I don't actually know. I think with our limited human understanding, it's, it's almost impossible to understand how anything good could come out of some of those catastrophes. But I think in the midst of those struggles that people face, there is some, there is some insights, maybe some reminders that God wants us to know. And so here are some very tentative thoughts. I think the first one that we are reminded of in disasters is simply about the uncertainty of life. Uh, an author called Erwin Lutzer puts it like this. He said, Tragedy rids us of the overconfidence we have that we are in control of our destiny. This is actually probably a bigger challenge for the atheist and the agnostic because humanity has always valued our independence, right? This apparent ability that we have to determine our own destiny. And when a natural disaster hits, it has a very humbling effect on that arrogance. It reminds us that, Much of our lives are beyond our control. James, the brother of Jesus, was well aware of this. He put it like this. He said, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. I think one one other reminder we have is that disasters remind us what's really important. You might remember a few, few years ago, 2017, Hurricane Harvey ripped across Texas in America. 
The winds were over 200 kilometres an hour. They got over 1,000 millimetres of rain in a couple of days. Huge amounts of uh, flooding as a result. Hundreds of people were killed. Thousands of people were homeless. And $125 billion worth of damage. And as you reflected on this, uh, an author by the name of Max Licardo put it like this. He said, no one laments a lost TV or a submerged SUV. No one runs through the streets yelling, my cordless drill is missing or my golf clubs have washed away. If they mourn, it is for people lost. If they rejoice, it is for people found. And perhaps disasters are a reminder that people are more important than possessions. There's so much stuff in the Western world, which we hang on to really, really tightly. And maybe disasters are a little bit of an echo of the words of Jesus. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul. I think disasters also remind us that we share a common humanity. You know, when there's no disasters happening, when there's no kind of dramas going on, our default tendency is to divide people into groups. The old and the young. The rich and the poor. The educated, the uneducated. Those who vote blue, those who vote red. Locals, tourists... Just this division. But disasters remind us that those distinctions are superficial. Like we're actually all in this together. And what's been inspiring about some of those communities across the North Island is that they've rolled up their sleeves and they've helped. They've repaired what's broken. They have shoveled mud. They have distributed food. And I encourage you that that is the call of every Christian to actively live out our faith, to get some skin in the game and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And you might go, well, I live down here. I can't shovel mud. What can I do? Well, we can pray. And we did that last week when we joined together uh, on our Sunday morning. And it was good to think of others uh, going through tough times and to ask that they would know God's presence and power among them. But you can pray at any time when you are watching the six o'clock news, when you're reading the headlines, when you're listening to the radio, you can pray for all people, especially those who are stressed and suffering. We can also grieve. And I think, I think disasters help our hearts fill with sympathy for those who are struggling. In the face of overwhelming loss, people don't want an explanation. They want commiseration. They want compassion, someone who cares. And you know, it doesn't matter whether that's a natural disaster or whether you've got a friend in crisis or whether you've got a workmate who's going through a challenge. Maybe we don't need to go in answering and accusing. Maybe we just need to go in grieving and giving, sharing the pain and the problems. And I think we can also give. Disasters are a really good opportunity to see good deeds happen, to help others in a time of need. And so, yes, we live miles away from those hotspots that have been badly affected, but that doesn't mean we can't help. Donations of money, clothing, food items, there's a whole bunch of charities and community groups that are collecting those. You can find them online. The Baptist Union, the collective uh, family of Baptist churches, which we're part of, they've set up bank accounts for donations to be distributed. If you want to know more about those, feel free to come and chat with me. But you know, as we look at the suffering of so many, as we look at the loss and the grief 
and the long road to recovery, it's very easy to ask that question, where is God in this? But when God is asked that question, he points people to the cross. Because the cross is a declaration that God does care, that he does love all people, that he offers everyone an opportunity to experience friendship with him. That cross is a promise that one day everything will be made right, that suffering will be no more, that love will conquer evil, that death will be defeated, and that hope will be fulfilled. Jesus put it like this, Here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this morning I'm going to simply invite us to share communion together, a symbol of the broken body and blood of Jesus who took all our pain and punishment. But it's also a reminder of the power and presence of God at work, that we are not forgotten. That instead of being vindictive and malevolent, that God is full of love and mercy. He knows what it's like to suffer, and he walks alongside those who are struggling. And so while we're doing that, I'm just going to play an instrumental song. The song Still, the song we just sung a few moments ago. And I invite you to reflect on those lyrics I hope they are an encouragement for you as you weather the storm with God beside you. So when you're ready, feel free to go to the tables, two at the front, one at the back, and partake in communion. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Let's pray together. God, we don't fully understand why, what, why disasters happen. But we do just want to trust you today that you hold this world in your hands. We just want to say thanks that you walk with us through our sufferings and our sadness, through the challenges and and changes we face, your presence is with us. And so we take heart, through your son Jesus you have overcome the world and we just simply want to live and love like him every day. We ask this in your name.